0: Welcome to the Bethesda Church Podcast, episode number two. Today we will be continuing our study in Ecclesiastes called Man's Search for Meaning. Today's message is titled, The Quest for Meaning, from Ecclesiastes chapters one and two. Here is Pastor Roy Burkett from Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Continuing our series today on Man's Search for Meaning, and part uh, it's almost like part two from the previous message we started with. Uh, last week, uh, talking about the question of the ages, the quest for meaning, and I, I just want to briefly and quickly go over just a little bit of what we covered last week i can 't begin to cover all that we covered last week, but the opening verses of Ecclesiastes reminds us that life is a vapor. it is a negative statement. it is so brief and so short. And then he goes on in the next uh, chapter and a half, he talks about life under the sun. And when he talks about life under the sun, he's talking about humans who live life only for this life. They have no connection with God, no thoughts of God. Life under the sun. And he talks about the cycles and knowledge and pleasure and wealth and work. And we're going to look at some more of those even today. And then he ends out the chapter of chapter 2 in a positive statement with life above the sun. The God-centered life. And, and that's really what the ultimate is that we should be seeking after. The question of the ages that we looked at last week was where does meaning in life come from? And why does life seem so futile? And that's what Solomon was attempting to do as he worked his way through Ecclesiastes. And so he made some assessments of life after careful observation. We looked at these last week and I just briefly want to mention them again as we continue on with assessment number three. Assessment number one is everything in this world is short-lived and senseless. In other words, it is utterly transitory and insignificant. Everything in the universe is fleeting and of no real consequence. All that man can accomplish has no ultimate value. Solomon looked at the universe and he saw the unending cycle of the sun. And said the sun rises and it sets. And it did that before I came and it will do that after I leave. Human insignificance in comparison to the unending cycle of the earth. Actually was first and then the sun. Thirdly human insignificance in comparison to the unending cycle of the wind you can just bring those up and then fourthly human insignificance in comparison to the unending cycle of the streams and then we went into assessment three life has no real meaning apart from god Solomon's searched for meaning, we talked about a kaleidoscope, when you look through a kaleidoscope and you twist it and you see different colors and patterns and shapes, it's in essence what Solomon was doing as he was looking at the world and looking at life. He picked up his kaleidoscope as it were and he's twisting it and he was looking at different lenses and pictures trying to find meaning, purpose, fulfillment and satisfaction in life apart from God and he said it is impossible. Lens number 1 that we looked at last week was philosophy. To discover the big picture in Ecclesiastes or I'm sorry Ecclesiastes 1:12 through 15 he said to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And he did that through philosophy. The disappointment in philosophy was this it is an impossible task. He says in chapter 1, verse 15, What is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, the big picture cannot be discovered by man apart from God. Lens number two that we want to look at this morning is study. To acquire wisdom and knowledge. We have to remember that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. In fact, his wisdom absolutely astounded the Queen of Sheba. We don't have time to read the entire account, but if we flip back to 1 Kings chapter 10, we learn more background about Solomon's life. When the Queen of Sheba, it says, heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Ladies can ask some hard questions. And she questioned him. And arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, it says she talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. And he says, nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon in the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants of their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord... It says, she was overwhelmed. Now, you know, the queen had been in some palaces before, but she had not seen anything like this palace. She had heard wisdom before, but she had never heard wisdom like was coming out of Solomon's mouth. In fact, she says in verse six, she says to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report that I have heard. She was absolutely amazed at the wisdom of Solomon. It reminds me of the young man at Fort Slocum. He was a New York, in New York, Private Solomon of Brooklyn was being questioned by the sergeant. The top kick asked, Private Solomon, what's your first name? Solomon, replied Solomon. Oh, a wise guy, barked the top kick. What's your middle name, Solomon? Solomon, replied Solomon. Say, listen, wise guy, the sergeant was exploding. The rookie was dead serious. His name was Solomon, Solomon, Solomon. Solomon. That he should have been three times as wise as Solomon. The focus of study, look down in our text in chapter 1, verse 16. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. And as we look at this, notice the I, the me, myself, self centered, if we're not God centered. Notice, I thought to myself, look, I have grown an increase in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge than I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He was focused on self. And that's really the choice that it comes down to. We either focus on God or we focus on ourselves. And so he's showing man focusing on himself because he did not think about God. Now remember, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And I have one burning question I would like to ask Solomon when I see him. What were you thinking? (laughs) 700. I mean, they say the penalty for bigamy is you have two mother in laws. I mean, he would have had all those mother in laws to deal with. Think about that. Maybe not think about that. I mean, incredible. They say the wife isn't always the boss in the American home, sometimes it's her mother. And it's true. Each morning, it has been said historically that each morning, all of the thousand wives would actually prepare a breakfast for Solomon in hopes that he would come and have breakfast with them. Can you imagine? A thousand ladies, each wanting to have breakfast with the king. He probably had multiple arguments going on at the same time. I mean, can't you just hear one of his wives... Solomon, I think it's time that I get a new chariot, to which he responds, you know, we really need to keep things in perspective. I got 200 other wives that want the same thing. Which well, she says, you know, I really could use a new chariot with a little more horsepower. Okay, I thought that was funny. <laughs> a little more horsepower. Um, Solomon, dear, I also could use some new shoes. I, I, He said, I just bought you some shoes three months ago. No, no, not shoes for me, for my horse. There were constantly needs. I say one of the problems of modern life for a husband is to teach his wife that even bargains cost money. (laughs) They said a woman in Tennessee recently complained. She said, my fur coat is so old, it's paid for. said, 60% of the country's wealth is in the hands of women. They're allowing men to hold the other 40% because their handbags are full. If you don't think that's true, look at the size of women's handbags and the size of a man's wallet, okay? (laughs) I mean, there is no comparison. I mean, it's just incredible. All right, what about the disappointment in wisdom? Sometimes, he says, this effort is like chasing wind. It is endless and fruitless. Notice what he says at the end of 17. It is a chasing after the wind, which is fruitless and endless. In man's search for meaning, we have attempted to reduce God to our rational mind. Through logic. However, I want to remind us that humans did not invent logic. Aristotle did not invent logic. Logic is grounded in the nature of God. And therefore, God has allowed you and I to logically understand and have a relationship with him. He is the one who imparts wisdom and Him alone. The key word is wisdom, chakmah. Our memory verse for this week, and actually last week because we didn't get to wisdom, is for the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. The source of all wisdom is a personal God who is holy, righteous, and just. His wisdom is expressed against the background of his omnipotence and his omniscience. By his wisdom, it says, he numbered the clouds. He called the stars by name. He spoke the world into existence. By his wisdom, he upholds the world by the word of his power. In fact, back in Job chapter 28, I only have a moment to read this, but if you get a chance... Write down Job 28 and read the whole chapter. But it says in verse 20, Where does then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. Listen carefully. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And then he goes on to say at the end of the chapter, And he said to man, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I want us to take a moment and think about some examples in the scriptures of people who were wise outside of even Solomon. What about Joseph? In Genesis chapter 41, in verse 15, it says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. But he said, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And after Joseph interpreted the dream, here's what Pharaoh said later in the chapter. He said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. What happens when you and I exercise biblical wisdom is this. We are diminished and God is magnified. That's the difference between human wisdom and godly wisdom. Human wisdom elevates man. Godly wisdom elevates God. God is the one who gets the glory and the praise. And immediately Pharaoh's heart was turned toward God. I think that is so neat. And it even says in Acts chapter 7, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so he made him ruler over Egypt. Then I think of Daniel. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel answered the king, And said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. The king had a dream. He was looking for somebody to interpret it. But here's what Daniel says. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. What did he do with biblical wisdom? Point the king to God. That's what biblical wisdom does. And when he was done interpreting the dream, in Daniel 2.47, it says this, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. And immediately his heart was touched by the God of all wisdom. One more example is Stephen. Stephen was seized and he was hauled before the authorities. And they begin to get into a debate with Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, here's what happened. As he stood before them, it says, The Cyrenians of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicily and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But here's what it says. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, what is the key to receiving this wisdom? If that is what we need in our lives is the wisdom of God, how do we get it? I think one of the keys is humility. It's acknowledging I don't have the answers. I don't have life figured out. I don't understand it all, and I don't have the ability to do it myself. I don't have the skill to navigate through the problems and questions and struggles of life without the wisdom of God. Because the only other alternative is my wisdom or man's wisdom. And it falls flat. And people struggle. We all struggle. We all have struggles. But if we have struggles, we need to take those struggles to the wisdom of God. Now, let me ask a question. Am I exercising biblical wisdom? It's a question. Am I exercising biblical wisdom if I take my family to a movie that is peppered with profanity? say, why are you saying that? Because I know Christians do that. And if you look at the reviews of the movie before you go, you might change your mind. It's changed mine many times. I looked up some movies that are being shown right now. Let's give me an example. Fast and Furious 6. Movie recently out. 60 vulgarities in that movie. If you go to that, are you really exercising biblical wisdom and promoting God's kingdom? It's a question. I don't know. I mean, I I know for me. Star Trek into darkness, 35 profanities. The internship, which just opened this weekend, 70 plus profanities. And people take it in. Now, we're either succumbing our mind to the human ways of the world or we are saturating our minds with the word of God. But if we are going to transform this culture, it will not be by giving our mind to pagan movies. And I'm not against the theater. Hear me. I'm saying be selective. Okay? I don't want to get into this. Should I or shouldn't I? Exercise biblical Wisdom is what I'm saying. And honoring God. Because here's what happens what we give our mind to, listen carefully, what we give our mind to, we will eventually give our money to. That's what I believe. There are other movies that are laced with lust. And so we have to guard our minds. And, and, and yet, um, I think it was a psalmist who said, and I meant to look this verse up, but I can tell you what it says. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. He made a covenant before God that he would not set before his eyes any vile thing. And that should be the desire of our heart That we would protect our eyes and our mind with biblical wisdom. Thoughts that are not grounded in biblical truth will skew man's ability to discern properly. Let me say that one more time. Thoughts that are not grounded in biblical truth Will skew man's ability to discern properly. So Solomon said, You know, wisdom is there, the wisdom of the world, but I need biblical wisdom. He picks up his kaleidoscope again and he twists it again, and this time it focuses on pleasure. Lens number three is pleasure. Just have fun. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Might as well enjoy everything you can. Indulge in pleasure. He wanted to indulge in pleasure to find out at the bottom of the barrel, does he find meaning and satisfaction and purpose in life? He finds the same thing, disappointment. Fun and laughter provide no meaning to life either. After it is all over, nothing has been gained pleasure. We get pleasure from hedonism. Hedonism has its roots in the early Greek philosophies of Aristippus of Cyrene, and more notably Epicurus. The root word from which we derive hedonism and hedonistic is the Greek word hedon, which means pleasure. The teaching here would hold to the idea that pleasure is the principal good in human life. What brings delight, gratification, or enjoyment results from indulgence in any wide range of activities that give opportunity for emotional satisfaction. But there's a danger to hedonism. The teachings of hedonism are based upon the belief That there are no moral absolutes and that truth is relative. And so therefore, what is pleasure to you, that's fine. What is pleasure to me is fine. There are no rules after all. It's up to the individual because there's no moral absolutes and it's all relative. Let me give you a definition of relativism. Relativism is the belief... That what can be known, especially in relation to moral issues, is dependent upon one's own personal views, your own personal views, or the collective beliefs of one's culture. So your own personal views or the collective beliefs of one's culture. This theory is in direct opposition to the idea of moral absolutes in the Bible. An absolute, what is a moral absolute? A moral absolute is an absolute that something is true for all peoples at all times and it never changes. For instance, murder. Murder is wrong all the time for all people in all places. To murder a person it is wrong. It has always been wrong, and it will always be wrong. Now, I'm going to talk about three types of relativism, and I just want you to hear these. I I, uh, got this out of the popular Encyclopedia of Apologetics, and they kind of overlap, so I hope it it makes sense to you. But the biggest thing is is understanding that really comes from our own personal opinions and ideas and that of the culture. But The first one is subjective relativism. And actually, the first two are are somewhat closely aligned. But subjective, and go ahead and put the next one up there, conventional relativism. Subjective and conventional relativism are directly related to value judgments made by individuals about moral issues. Value judgments made by individuals about moral issues. A third view, which is a little more group-oriented in nature, is known as cultural relativism. Now let me go back for a moment. Subjective relativism asserts that what is right and wrong are subject to individual interpretation. What is right and wrong is up to the individual to interpret and decide. (laughs) Conventional relativism rejects subjectivism and teaches that a person should submit his will to that of his culture. What is a culture embracing? The third view, culture relativism, is a belief that because morality differs from culture to culture, You have to find out what that culture believes and adopt your beliefs to what that culture decides. Whatever the culture says, goes. And that's where a lot of people are when it comes back to the idea of biblical wisdom and moral absolutes. And so what happens is this. It leads one to the primary premise of hedonism and other moral philosophies which states that the end result or consequence of the act determines what is right and wrong. The end result is what really matters. The approach to moral decision-making states that to correct moral choices, a person must endeavor to predict what will result from his choices. If the choice results in the correct consequences or results, then the person is deemed to have acted morally if the consequences turn out okay. If the choices made result in incorrect consequences or results, the act may be considered wrong or immoral. However, it brings a pivotal question to mind. How does one determine or calculate the correctness of an act? From a hedonistic standpoint, the answer is one must determine the quantity or quality of pleasure as opposed to the pain that resulted or will result from the action. So what they're saying is, whatever brings you the most pleasure and reduces the pain is the right answer. And that is false. That's what the world would say. And so here's the problem with a hedonistic moral philosophy. By making pleasure the essence of good and pain the embodiment of evil... Pleasure becomes relative to the individual or the group. And here's the problem with that. It makes possible to justify injustices. Case in point, slavery. What happened when people had slaves? Well, it brought pleasure to the slave owners, but I don't know that it brought a lot of pleasure to the slave or if you take someone who violates a child, it's wrong in every culture to violate a child. You're put in prison for that. And it's wrong because it's a moral absolute. It may bring pleasure to the individual, but he's done so at the expense of someone else's pain. The second problem with moral, hedonistic moral philosophy is implementing pleasure as a standard... For what is good leads to a moral philosophy where the end justifies the means. The end result, however, does not always justify the means as we just mentioned in slavery. It may have benefited the American economy, but it abused people. And therefore, it's wrong. You can't do that based simply on the color of someone's skin. In addition... Students, if the end justifies the means, then that means students can cheat on exams and people can lie on their resumes as a means of graduating and making more money for your family to get a better job. If the morals is not important, but it is. And the danger is that the Bible says that in the last days, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so we need to be careful with our entertainment, that we make sure that we exercise biblical wisdom with our entertainment. Lens number four, as he begins to twist through, as he works his way through, Chapter 2. Look in chapter 2 with me, if you would. I thought in my heart, and he's still I, my, come now, I will test you with pleasure, which we just looked at, to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? And then the next lens, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Again, making a reference to life as a vapor. It's very short. And so lens number four is strong drink to escape reality. Or it could be any kind of mood-altering drug. To escape reality, to deaden the pain of the meaninglessness of life. Many people, they say, who drink strong drink do so because they're looking for courage at the bottom of a bottle. And I think there's truth to that. Here's the disappointment, however. Escaping reality does not answer the nagging question of the meaning of life. And so strong drink is not the answer either. Not to bring meaning and purpose And fulfillment in life. He goes on. Look in verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. And planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. And planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves. And had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers. He had a whole choir and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He's saying it's all a bunch of garbage apart from God, life under the sun. And so he twists his lens again, and I'm going to focus on three things here because there are, there are so many things he lists here. Lens number five as he twists his kaleidoscope. Wealth, women, and work. Now, I know some of you are saying those really do go together. (laughs) Wealth, well, you say maybe not the wealth, but the women and work, right? I know what you're thinking. Um, And so, what is he looking at here? A lot of money. Solomon was very wealthy and affluent. In fact, they would say that kings would amass. He massed all those wives and concubines, not necessarily just for personal pleasure, but to promote his prosperity. Because the size of a person's kingdom and the amount of people around him showed his power and his influence. However, the disappointment was this. Money, merchandise, and marriages fall short of bringing satisfaction to life apart from themselves. In fact, somebody once said, if you you want to know how to handle a big fortune, ask the man who doesn't have any. He'll tell you how to handle it. But we are driven for more, are we not? And it starts way down here. We're driven for more. It reminds me of the cartoon I saw the other day in the newspaper. The little boy came up to his mother, or whatever, and said, Can I put my tooth under Eric's pillow? Because his tooth fairy gives more money than ours. <laughs> I thought that was cute. They say nothing makes a woman's clothes go out of style faster than her husband's raise in salary. <laughs> King Solomon was wealthy. He drafted a labor force out of Israel, they said, that numbered 30,000 men. He had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. And he had as well as 3,300 chief officers who were over the work. They say he received over 25 tons of gold every year. He had 500 shields of hammered gold and overlaid his ivory throne with gold. He owned 4,000 stalls for his many horses. Wouldn't want to have to clean those, would you? His kingdom extended from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines in the border of Egypt. Egypt. They say if you travel to Stockholm, Sweden, you can spend the night on Lake Maryland in a 59-room yacht that has a wonderful bed and breakfast, and the yacht is a short walk from the old town and practically in the shadow of the city hall where the Nobel Prize is, Nobel Prize is awarded each year. If you would have traveled to Hong Kong in April of 1999 on April 26. You could have bid at the Sotheby's auction for an imperial family rose cup for the Yangshang period. And listen to this. The cup sold eventually for 17840000 Hong Kong dollars. VG Lee Brun's 1787 oil painting of her daughter Julie is a beautiful example of maternal love and artistic expression. It is held in a private collection of Michael David Weil. If you would like to charter a private rail car for your next trip by train, Monin's Business Car number 3 is available. It features a master bedroom with upper and lower berths, a roomette, one fold-down Murphy bed, one Convertible sofa, one marble tub, a shower, a dining room, meal service, an observation lounge, an open rear platform, a stereo, a television, a VCR, cellular and terminal phones, and all wood interior. You may be asking, what do all these things have in common? There is a common denominator to all four of these. Some of you may remember the name F.W. Woolworth. He was the founder of the Woolworths chain of stores. And he made one of the largest fortunes in the world by the early 1900s. A portion of this fortune, more than $50 million, was given to his granddaughter, Barbara Hutton, when she turned 21 in 1933. Although she was one of the richest women in America, she was never able to find personal happiness. She married seven times, including among her husbands a prince, a count, and an actor, Cary Grant. Hutton spent her life battling drug and alcohol dependency and anorexia, and her numerous divorces left her almost bankrupt. When the reclusive Hutton finally died at age 66, she weighed less than 100 pounds And she only had $3,000 left to her name. What do those four items I mentioned earlier have in common? At one time, all of them were owned by Barbara Hutton. Amusement, pleasure, accumulation... Of things. If I am attracted to something or someone, I want it. I want to experience it. That's what Solomon was saying. Apart from God, we will chase after all of that stuff, and it's meaningless. Now, I do want to say wealth is not evil. It is not wrong. God blessed Solomon with money, with wealth, with possessions. It's keeping it in perspective. It's keeping our life above the sun so that we're careful that we own them and they don't own us. I know we have some very giving people in our church. And, you know, as I thought about this message, I thought about my own life. And I thought, you know, if I had more in my bank account, I would probably have a bigger house, a nicer house, wouldn't you? Isn't that the way we think? I would have this. I would have that. And so it's easy to point the finger at somebody who has more and judge them, but that's not the point. The point is that we exercise biblical wisdom and we take life from God's perspective and honor him with everything we have to bring him the greatest glory. Let's stand for a word of prayer. I would ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to ask you, how about your quest for meaning? Where are you getting it from? Are you getting it from God's word, biblical wisdom? And what about decisions in regard to your own life, or if you're a leader of a family? Are you exercising biblical wisdom in leading your family? It's so vital. Who would the kids say you are trusting in? If we are going to teach our children humility, how are we going to do that as parents? I think number one is we pray with our kids. They see us seeking the throne of God for wisdom and grace. They see us opening the scriptures and saying, God, I don't have it all figured out. They see us apologizing when we've done wrong. We've made a mistake. They learn it from us. The greatest discipleship that we need to be involved in as parents is in our own home, discipling our children, taking time to invest in them spiritually so they have biblical wisdom and grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord to challenge them to have a biblical worldview And not adopt the philosophy of the world or of the culture. Because that's what we're up against. Maybe you're a grandparent here. And as grandparents, you're concerned about your grandchildren. I've had a few grandparents tell me how concerned they are about their grandchildren. And the direction of what their future might be. Would you do your part in investing in your grandchildren? Take them under your wing. Share your testimony with them. Pray with them. Don't just sit back. Make an investment in their life for time and eternity. What is God saying to you this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you've been relying on your own wisdom and you have never bowed your knee to the foot of the cross. And maybe things aren't going well for you right now. And it's time to say, you know, I recognize my bankruptcy now apart from biblical wisdom and I need to give my life to Christ. Is that you this morning? I'll be down front here after the service. Would you seek me out if you would like to invite Jesus Christ into your life today? He died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sin. You and I could be forgiven because we have violated His law. But He's made it possible that we could have a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Life does not make sense apart from God. It just doesn't. There's no reason for us to be here except to bring glory to God and to honor Him. And it is a challenge in this day and age. And I would implore you and challenge you, before you do, engage in entertainment. Research it. Go to PluggedInOnline.com. That's where I went. I just went and looked those up. Plugged in online.com and it showed me language, sexuality, all those things are listed. And is that, And then you have to ask the question is that what I want my family to learn? Who's going to teach your kids? The pagan people or God's wisdom? They're going to be subject to enough things in the world. And we need to be careful. If you have a spiritual need in your life, maybe it's not salvation. Maybe it's something else. I'll be here afterwards. Or seek out one of our leaders, or I can point you to someone. We're here to, to pray and to grow together. All of us struggle. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have all the answers. I'm a fellow struggler with you. And I don't do it right 100% of the time. And if that comes out, that's not the way it's meant to be. I have failed as well. So God speaks to me as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of your word. Lord, we live in exciting times because there's such a need. There's such a need for the gospel. Man is desperately searching for answers because life is empty. It is futile. It is aimless. And there's no purpose. And there's no hope apart from you. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us hope in the gospel. And Father, we know that we fail you at times. We know that we fall short of your glory. We know that we don't always do those things that are pleasing to you. And I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. God, would you forgive us for those times that we fail you? And would you help us to renew our commitment to set no vile thing before our eyes, to make sure that we are exercising biblical wisdom in the choices we make, and that we are taking advantage of the time and opportunity you give us to invest in the lives of the precious children that you have blessed us with and grandchildren, how we need to pray with them and for them, how we need to encourage them and instruct them in the ways of the Lord because the days are evil. God, help us to take that upon us with your help and your grace and to impress upon them the truths of Scripture so that they will walk in obedience to you and they will be transformers of the culture and not merely cave into it. Father, as I think about our outreach this summer, there'll be a lot of people that we will rub shoulders with who are searching for meaning. And they might be at their wits' end. There'll be children who are living in confusion, emotional hurt, and pain. And God, may we be able to help point them to Christ the one who can heal, the one who can forgive, the one who can reconcile them to you. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the privilege we have to preach your word in a culture that is quickly, quickly abandoning truth. May we cling to it. May we proclaim it boldly. May we live it out forthrightly to a lost world. Lord, if there's one here today who has not accepted Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin and they would come to the foot of the cross and confess their sin to you and receive the righteousness of Christ, the forgiveness for their sins, who will have their sins removed as far as the east is from the west. Lord, we thank you for your salvation. Lord, help us this week in all that we do to honor you and to please you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.